Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the Earthside Echo, your source for all the latest dispatches from Earthside. When the Burning Man first appeared above the city of London, most saw only horror and destruction. But the cult of the Burning Man saw a prophecy fulfilled. They say this bizarre religion has deep roots throughout the King's Empire and beyond, and they are growing more powerful by the day. I hope you enjoy part one of Lantern Burning. Lantern Burning They told me that what I had seen was impossible. Silencing me with their judgment, they said that he would never come, and that the earth would never burn. But in their arrogance, they were deceived, for he was already inside all of us. To him and his followers, are we mere tinder? So we are, but without us, his flame might never burn. It is through us that his world will be reborn anew, and it is through him that we become who we are meant to be. When he first joined the army of the king's empire as a field medic, Willem swore an oath to follow his regiment to Helen back. After just nine months of service, patrolling the long stretch between Kabul and Islamabad in a futile attempt to flush out the lurking insurgents of the Tsar, he considered this promise more than fulfilled. The terrain of the Indus Basin, as if sensitive to the brazen trespass of unwanted outsiders, seemed intent on curtailing the army's advance. The crippling heat waves, choking dust storms, and the endless expanse of rugged topography, too treacherous for horses or pack mules, were enough to drive any man to distraction. Worse still, disease and fatigue attacked those who had not yet succumbed to the elements. Vellum found his medical knowledge tested to its limits every day, as the troops contracted stubborn parasites from stagnant waters or lacerated their limbs on the flanges of craggy mountain passes. Even these cruel gambits of the earth were the least of their worries. Hostile as it was, the Badlands volatility paled in comparison to the insoluble suspicion of its inhabitants. Despite being warned that the tribal peoples refused to trust or befriend foreigners, Willem never ceased to be taken aback by the frigidity of the locals, sparse as they were in this decrepit desert. In the scattered villages where he and his men ventured, simply to trade or even to assist with the digging of wells in exchange for a hot meal, they were tolerated as negligible threats rather than greeted as guests. For reasons that Willem could not comprehend, the Tsar's forces made a more favourable impression. It pained him to see the occasional piece of silver emblazoned with the seal of St. Petersburg amongst the bric-a-brac in the bazaars or the bigger hamlets, while his own sterling was rejected. Such allegiances made every village an opportunity for an ambush, pushing the already frayed nerves of both soldiers and hosts to their absolute limits. Willem heard rumours that the Tsar's forces had dabbled with forbidden arts banned by the king's laws, but at what cost were they to be stopped, especially thousands of miles away from Britain? 
As an adolescent at Eton, Willem learned how the crusade of Alexander the Great had ground to a halt in these very sands. Fed up with the climate and the people, Alexander's troops mutinied against the very general whom they had once revered as a god. Then, the young doctor foolishly wondered what it would be like to explore the lands that had stalled even the man who allegedly wept once there were no worlds left to conquer. Now he knew. The great game had no winner. The intrigue and subterfuge of a life on the frontier fighting for king and country was nothing but an elaborate sham. It was a mystery to him why the generals were unwilling to simply concede this barren landscape to the Tsar and be done with it. Even the fading beauty of the winking stars peeping through the mesh of his tent was not enough to console Willem as he awoke at sunrise for another hard day on the frontier. There was some kind of commotion outside. Perhaps the early risers were already receiving reports from the scouts. Doctor! A pair of rough hands suddenly shook Willem from his stupor. His eyes snapped open. Doctor, please, it's an emergency. Get up! Get up! He recognised the voice. The young Captain Tybalt. Willem reached for his glasses and leapt out of the sleeping bag. Something was wrong. He fingered the safety on the derringer strapped to his hip and checked for the knife hidden on the inside of his right boot. What is it, Tybalt? Something you saw on patrol? Is anyone hurt? One of our men from another regiment out in the desert. He's dead, sir. Multiple lacerations and... The scout's voice shook, as if he wanted to say more, but he held himself in check. What aren't you telling me? Willem eyed him nervously, instantly alert. You best see for yourself, Doc. I can't... The soldier looked green. Willem brushed past Tybalt and strode out into the desert, one hand on his weapon, the other clutching his medical bag. The embers of the night's cooking fire were still alight. The scout horses whinnied and turned their glassy eyes away from the putrid smoke. They too could sense the commotion. The men were huddled around a cotton sheet, drenched with blood. Lying atop it was a man in the tan uniform of the king's army, although the badges on his shredded lapel were from another regiment, too ripped to properly identify. His bruised face was swollen and caked with blood, both congealed and fresh. Willem almost dropped his bag in shock. The man's left eye had been gouged out. Driven by grim curiosity, the doctor inched closer. He soon wished he hadn't, as he realised that much of the fresh blood flowed from the man's hands as well as his face. Holes the size of coins were cleanly punched through the centre of each palm. What the hell? Willem choked, looking imploringly at Tybalt and his scouts for answers. How did you find him? We were on our way back from a perimeter sweep, Tybalt explained through gritted teeth. There was a rider in the distance. We ordered him to identify himself, but he gave no answer. He fell from his horse. We rode to intercept, and when we found him... The scout gulped. He was just dead, Doc, tied to the saddle like a goddamn rag doll. He clenched his fists so tightly that his already pale knuckles turned white as snow. It was those tribal savages, all the Tsar's men. They're sending us a message. Tybalt forced his eyes open, 
his gaze lingering on the body for as long as he could tolerate, before he had to look away. We have to move camp before they find us too. As Willem reached down to check for a pulse, a shuddering breath and a blood-curdling scream pierced the cool morning air. The other scouts jumped, and Willem withdrew his hand in terror. The man was still alive. Through the delirium of pain and confusion, he clutched at his empty eye socket with crimson fingers, screaming again as he saw the holes in his palms with what little vision must have remained to him. Tybalt swore, and the other scouts stared at each other blankly, eyes wide with fear. Don't just stand there, Willem barked. Get me rags and boiling water. He moved swiftly to procure an opiate solution from the depths of his bag and began to pour it down the stranger's throat. The patient's remaining eye rolled up towards the back of his head. We're losing him. Tybalt, don't be squeamish. He beckoned to the scout with urgency. Get your shit together and restrain him, damn it. He's going to hurt himself. He pulled out a leather strip and deftly placed it into the man's open mouth. Had Willem been a second later, the poor screamer might have bitten off his own tongue. The next few hours passed in a blur. Afraid that their position had been compromised, but unable to move camp without abandoning their charge, the men entrenched themselves in the dunes as the doctor began to work, cleaning each wound and praying that this month in hell would be his last. After the vision, no one believed in me. I could hardly blame them, for even I was not convinced by what I had seen. I spent months locked alone in my study, reflecting on his flickering flames. I might have dismissed myself as mad if he had not spoken to me directly during those troubled days. Where did the pain go? It had been blindingly intense before, so unbearable that he fell unconscious. Blindingly intense. His eyesight felt funny. He could see his nose as a hazy blur in the lower left corner of his vision. His left eye felt swollen. Numbly he tried blinking, and shuffled backwards in alarm as his perspective remained unchanged. He raised his bandaged hands and felt the stiffness of the gauze over his face and skull. This shock was almost worse than the earlier pain. You're awake, soldier. The voice startled him, almost as much as his bandages. He couldn't see the speaker. Where? Where are you? Apologies. I should have realised that you couldn't see me from that angle. After an awkward sigh and the sound of shuffling feet, a young man in a tan military uniform appeared to his right. A white armband with a red cross distinguished him as a field surgeon, although the gleaming medals on his chest showed that he was no stranger to either combat or command. Do you remember your name? He had to think. The numbness of his hands and face made it hard to focus. Fenton. Fenton Brahms of the Sixth Afghan Fusiliers. How did I get here? Where the hell am I? Well, Fenton Brahms, Willem said with a grimace. For starters, you were very lucky to be alive. My name is Dr. Willem Bryant. 
I hold provisionary command over the Seventh until my superiors return from the siege at Peshawar. You're in a field hospital, halfway between Islamabad and Kabul. The doctor stared at him quizzically. I believe your regiment was sent further north to Uzbek territory. What are you doing so far away from there? Fear lurched inside Brahms's stomach. He couldn't remember. Had he deserted his men? No, he would never give up on them. His entire memory felt so clouded. Brahms shook his head wistfully. I honestly don't know. I'm sorry, Doctor. Willem gave him an encouraging smile. It's all right. Short or even long-term memory loss isn't uncommon after severe trauma, and you sustained quite a head injury. He took out a notepad and began scribbling furiously. Severe trauma? Brahms looked at his padded hands and felt his swollen skull. What the hell happened to me? Why aren't I in pain? Opium, said Willem instantly, with a rare chuckle as he pulled a vial of milky liquid from his shirt pocket and twirled it between his fingers. If there's one thing this goddamn quagmire is good for, it's the occasional poppy field. His grin drooped. You sustained severe puncture wounds to your palms. Your left eye has been excised, and your skull was fractured. You were also dangerously dehydrated. Brahms's heart stopped. His left eye, gone. Holes in his hands. He could sense them throbbing now, even beneath the anaesthetic's dulcet numbing. Willem bent down and placed a hand on Brahms's shoulder with surprising tenderness. I understand this is difficult to process but you should know that your wounds are no longer life-threatening. The blood clotting on your palms and face tells me that you sustained those injuries before you were hit in the head. It's probably little consolation, but even though whoever attacked you wanted to make you suffer, they put on a poor show of finishing you off. At that moment, another man shuffled awkwardly into the tent. Brahms noticed that the newcomer would not look at him directly, but instead kept casting glances at him from the corner of his eye. "'Ah, oh, Tybalt,' said Willem warmly. "'Excellent. You've come just in time to meet Fenton Brahms of the Sixth. He does have a name and regiment after all. Lucky you found him when you did.' He clapped Tybalt on the shoulder, but the man seemed less than relieved. "'You'll live then, Doc?' Tybalt's voice nervously shook. "'Did he mention... Anything about what happened to him? Brahms sensed a hostility that he couldn't quite identify. No, replied Willem, the disappointment in his tone evident. He sustained short-term memory loss, but at least he remembers his identity. Only the past day or so seemed to be hazy. I'm not sure whether or not they will return. I called because I hoped that you might explain to Lieutenant Brahms how you found him. Brahms? He nodded towards Tybalt. This is one of our scout captains, Tybalt Weir. He found you in the desert. You owe him your life. Brahms said nothing. In the desert. Alone. None of it made sense. You were strapped to a horse, set loose in the wastes. Tybalt responded gruffly. You were unconscious, and since your eye was missing... He paused, pointedly looking away as he coughed and collected himself. You had those holes in your hands. 
We figured you were seized in a tribal ambush, tortured or maybe even used in one of the Tsar's men's rituals and sent back out into the desert as a message. Tybalt gulped, as if continuing seemed physically painful. It's not uncommon, he concluded, fists clenched in rage as he exchanged a telling look with Willem. Damn monsters! They wanted us to find your body. I've executed plenty of these bastards who have skinned our men like cats or driven nails through their hands. They deserved worse than the bullet I put in the back of their skulls. He spat on the ground. I'm telling you, Doc, we've got no business being out here. The Tsar, if the rumours about his troops are true, and the locals, they don't want us. And based on what I've seen, we want nothing to do with them. The doctor raised his eyebrows. As you've told me, and the rest of your squad repeatedly, Captain. I agree, but that's not for us to decide. The Tsar must be held in check. Tybalt raised his eyebrows. You're not going to deny those rumours, are you? What they say the Tsar can do to the dead, just like they do in Malifaux. Willem raised his eyebrows. I don't know. I'm a man of science. I leave the arcane to those better qualified to understand it. Tybalt laid a hand on Brahms's wrist, although the gesture seemed to lack Willem's warmth. Brahms winced. I'm telling you, I've seen this kind of torture before. He forced himself to look straight into Brahms's eye. Do you remember anything about what happened to you? Were you seized and forcibly interrogated, or worse, used in some ritual? What did you tell them? He started to shake Brahms with an urgent, newfound vitality that belied his earlier squeamishness. Well, did you give away your regiment's position, did you? Enough, Tybalt, barked Willem. It's been twelve hours since you found him. If he had given away any of the regimental positions, we'd have been attacked already. The second and the third checked in safely. We're waiting on reports from the others. But if they were in immediate danger, we'd know by now. He glanced at Brahms who still remained silent. I'm sorry, but Tybalt speaks out of concern for our safety. The scout took a deep breath. Apologies, Will. I've forgotten myself. He cast a furious glance at Brahms. Rest up, soldier. You'll need it. The shame slowly sunk in for Brahms. The memories were gone, but the guilt remained. Despite his training and pride, he had been taken. The holes in his hands were proof of that. He had given everything to the king's empire, his youth, his career, and now his body. But now, at least to the scouts, he would be made an outcast for a defeat he could not even remember. The blood would wash away. His hands and skull would heal. The pain of his defeat never would. Brahms could only close his eye and surrender to the darkness. No matter the pain, he told me that I would endure as his prophet, and that in the end his new world would be good and beautiful, just as you too shall be in his warm embrace. You are his light, he is your lantern, and through the gifts he shall bestow at the crossing, you shall never be found wanting. The scars on Brahms's palms were bleeding again, the flesh had grown back, 
but the angry red halos that demarcated where the wounds had once been refused to heal. They were a constant reminder of his failure. In fact, he hoped that they would never fade. He needed a testament to his own worthlessness. In the weeks following his return from the dead, Brahms's body healed, but his spirit remained broken. Despite the furious probing of high command, he was unable to recount what exactly had happened to him, or what information he gave away to the enemy under duress. Willem interceded on his behalf, and only after the good doctor explained that Brahms had lost his memory, not to mention his eye, while serving his majesty, did the Inquisition cease. The interrogators thanked him for his service, and offered to return him to London. But Brahms refused. He had already been captured, and a return home felt like the ultimate defeat. Brahms remained in stasis, integrating himself into the seventh under Willem's care, slowly regaining his strength and coordination by moving supplies, though he kept himself away from scouting or fighting. He still felt useless, but some form of service, however limited, was better than suffering the indignity of a medical discharge. As Brahms was lost in his thoughts, Tybalt slipped beside him unnoticed. You've healed well, it seems. I'm impressed. The scout captain had avoided him for so long that Brahms was shocked they were speaking. I'm sorry about what happened to you. I truly am. It was late. The rest of the scouts had been dismissed for the night shift. Only the two of them remained. Brahms put down his walking stick. He had whittled it from a dead branch found in the desert weeks ago. Even after he could walk without its assistance, he held on to it. Another memento of his failure. Shouldn't you be out with your men? Tybalt paused, as if unsure of what else to say. It's Lysander's shift tonight. Anyway. Don't feel sorry for me. It's gotten better. I should thank you for saving me. Brahms paused, staring at the sores on his hands. I owe you an apology. I was afraid you had compromised all of us, but that fear was selfish. You went through so much pain. At least you don't remember any of it. Brahms tightened his grip on the walking stick. I was captured. The shame of it will eventually wash away, I suppose. Hopefully. Tybalt shifted guiltily and looked around to make sure no one else was watching. Confident that the other men were inside their tents, he dropped his voice to a whisper. I've wanted to tell you this for a long time, but I couldn't find an opportunity. He took a deep breath. I understand how you're feeling. Lost, angry, defeated. They told us that we would be fighting the Tsar for king and country. But that was all just a lie for sending us straight to hell, no? He coughed nervously. I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And I've found something that might help with the pain. I was broken, and it fixed me. Tybalt pulled out a little black book. Do you want to take a look? Brahms accepted the offering with his hand. In the pale light of the campfire, he made out the words on the cover etched in faded gold. Contiones del Regge Flamai. Many of the pages were dog-eared. He flipped to the first one, 
noticing that the text had been heavily marked and underlined in red ink. They told me that what I had seen was impossible. Silencing me with their judgment, they said that he would never come, and that the earth would never burn. But in their arrogance they were deceived, for he was already inside all of us. That was enough. He snapped the book shut. Tybalt, is this what I think it is? Tybalt's eyes lit up. You've heard of the Church of the Burning Man, then? You mean the cult started by that madman Ephraim Wade? He's the one worshipped by those nutters who walk around in black cassocks and hand out pamphlets at every bloody street corner from Knightsbridge to Holborn, isn't he? So you're familiar with... Tybalt responded. Yes, I've heard of it. Brahms interrupted sceptically. Tybalt, I appreciate your support, I really do, but... The scout cut him off. Do you take me for a fool? He smirked, his eyes dancing in the firelight. I don't know what Wade thinks he saw. I'm not one of those religious fanatics who marched in the New Year's massacre. But Wade's point about the end of the world. I think his sense of nihilism is correct. Everything we do is meaningless. Our fate is left in the hands of a higher power and we have no control over any of it. Think about our own struggle on this goddamn rock. None of it matters in the end if it's all going to be swept clean. You of all people should feel it, don't you? Brahms remained silent, unsure of how to respond. The captain wasn't wrong. Tybalt reached into his uniform again and pulled out an effigy of twigs tied with string. It was no bigger than his index finger. Brahms's curiosity got the better of him. What's that? It's a wicker fix, Tybalt answered with a smile. He represents the burning man. The end. We carry them with us as a reminder that the end is coming and that we should not fear death because in the transition to his new world after the crossing, everything will be swept away. Brahms rolled his remaining eye, but Tybalt ignored him. Like I said, I don't know if it's true or not, but it doesn't really matter. The burning man means different things to different people. For me, it represents some kind of end that will wipe away all of our suffering. Maybe it's an inferno like Wade says. Maybe it's a flood. Or maybe it's the moment when one of the Afghans or the Tsar's men slip my throat. But an end is coming, whatever we do. We only have the power to postpone it, protract our own lives and limit our suffering until it does. And when that end does come, we have to accept it with grace and courage, not as an end, but as a transition into a purer, brighter world, preserved for the faithful. Let me see that again, Brahms requested. Tybalt placed the book in his outstretched hand. Look, I know you're in pain. I've made mistakes, Brahms, bad ones. You're broken too. Consider this as my way of making things right again. I need to do this not for you but for me, so I can continue to live my life to the fullest before it all comes crashing down. Here, take this too. Tybalt pulled out another wicker fix. We burn them in prayer. It's like burning our sins away. You think I can redeem myself then? He asked, flipping through the pages of the Contionis with less vitriol than before. From all of it, from the information I might have given away, 
or worse, being used in a perverse ritual? Can I atone for the lives that were threatened by my negligence? Do you really believe it? I do. Tybalt smiled. You're alive, Brahms. Despite all likelihood to the contrary, there must be some higher power keeping you for some... The scout choked, and there were tears in his eyes. Not of sadness, but of regret. For something. Just... Just say a prayer with me. I'll speak it every night before I go to sleep. Makes me feel better. He tossed another wicker fix into the embers of the fire, and the hearth suddenly leapt with the vivaciousness of a newly born blaze. The dancing flames made the hairs on Brahms's neck stand up, and he found himself listening to Tybalt's vow with his eye closed, feeling the coolness of the night air on his face. He is my lantern, and no darkness shall take me. Tybalt said soothingly, He maketh me see while others stay blind. He leadeth me on the path of purification. He restoreth my spirit when it becomes empty. Though this world taketh so much, I fear no retribution, no violence, no hate. For he is with me, and his world is bright and beautiful. Bright and beautiful? Brahms held up his new wicker fix. I don't understand. You don't have to, said Tybalt, rising and patting Brahms on the shoulder. That's what faith is. Just, just read a little more. Keep his word as a reminder that all is not lost. He rose and began to make his way back to his tent. Oh, and one last thing, he said shiftily, looking around once again. Don't tell Wilhelm that I gave you that book. No one needs to know about my faith except the other allegiance. Tybalt left Brahms alone by the firelight, nursing his walking stick with the contiones open in one hand, his remaining eye moving swiftly and hungrily, devouring the words on the page. Tybalt's whispers still rang in his head. There must be some higher power keeping you for something. Back in his tent, and unbeknownst to Brahms, Tybalt sunk to his knees with a sigh and began to say another prayer. There would be no absolution this time. Brahms could never know that Tybalt's scouts had found him, tortured him, and tried to kill him. None of the scouts had expected Brahms to live through it. His body was supposed to be a warning about the savagery of this place. Had the man died, surely such brutality would have convinced the others to give up this pointless Afghan crusade and return the regiment to London. His scouts had sinned, oh yes, but was it so terrible a plan if it could have saved the lives of many and exposed the great game for all of its madness? But miraculously Brahms had not died. He survived and recovered, with no memory of what happened. Surely the burning man was watching over this one. Even as Tybalt and his men knocked him out with the stocks of their rifles, drove the nails through his hands, mutilated his face and bashed his head in with a rock, bringing Brahms a step closer into his embrace, would surely atone for all of it. None of it mattered anyway, Tybalt thought wistfully. Ephraim Wade preached that there would be no consequences for such transgression, since the end was nigh. After the crossing, 
His world will be bright and beautiful. But Wade had not, at least to Tybalt's immediate knowledge, tortured and almost murdered another human being. Could he really be redeemed? Perhaps it was all a lie after all. No prediction about the end of the world could truly relieve him of his crippling guilt. If consequences did not matter, why did he feel sick? Maybe Brahms would find a way to truly make the Burning Man his own, where he, Tybalt, had failed. Tybalt had done everything to ensure that there was nothing left to implicate him as a member of his flock. He burned one wicker fix and gave the remaining one to Brahms along with his only copy of the Contiornis. Mind at peace for the first time in weeks, he muttered a final prayer, placed the barrel of his derringer in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. That's it for another episode of the Earthside Echo. Join us next time for the conclusion of Lantern Burning 2.0.